It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Angela Saini is an award-winning science journalist and author. She has worked as a reporter for numerous media outlets, including the BBC, The Guardian, New Scientist and National Geographic. In 2020, Angela was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers by Prospect magazine. And in 2018, she was voted one of the most respected journalists in the UK. She has two books published and has a third one coming out in March 2023. She has written Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, which examines the history of science's understanding of sex differences. It looks at everything from whether little boys really do prefer playing with cars rather than dolls to whether the structure of the female brain is different from the male. She's written Superior, The Return of Race, which examines the history of race science and ways in which it is being resurrected in the 21st century. Her third book, the new one, The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule, will be the one we delve into today. I've had the benefit of an advanced copy and it's a terrific book. Welcome to the podcast, Angela. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Julia. And I just want to say, and I'm sure people are aware of this already, but you are one of the kindest, most generous people I've ever met. So thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. That's very nice of you. Well, I feel privileged to be one of the first to get to read the book. (laughs) Before we get to the book, I'm going to take you right back to the very beginning, right back to your childhood. Can you tell us a little bit about your family and how it felt when you moved from a very multicultural area in East London to the almost exclusively white area of South East London when you were 10. How formative was that experience for you? It was everything, I think. It shaped my entire career after I left school because I went from an environment in which my colour really didn't matter so much, or at least I wasn't so aware of it, to an environment in which I was being constantly reminded of my race. That part of Southeast London at the time, and it's not like this now, my parents still live there, and it has changed completely. The demographics are completely different now. But when we were growing up, there were fascist marches through the town where I lived on some weekends. You just couldn't go out on those days. There were racist murders, the most famous of which was of Stephen Lawrence, as everyone knows, in the 1990s. And the British National Party, which was the main far-right party at that time, had its headquarters, its unofficial headquarters, the BNP bookshop, in the town where I went to school. So racism really was the backdrop to my teenage years. And that was the reason why when I got to university, I got very involved in anti-racist activism. 
I became one of the co-chairs of the Anti-Racism Committee on the Union. And that's when I started writing. I wouldn't have gone into journalism otherwise. That's a fascinating backstory to your interest in journalism, but I want to tease out the intersection between race and sexism in your background. When did you first think to yourself as a child, hmm, I reckon I'm getting treated a bit differently because I'm a girl? I was very lucky to have grown up in a family. We were three sisters. My mum came from a family of mainly sisters. She had six sisters, altogether, six <laughs> girls altogether in her family. And my dad had grown up with a very strong mother because his was a military family, so his dad was often away. And it meant that we were raised in this environment in which we were genuinely did not believe that there was anything we couldn't do. And my parents split all the work down the middle. There was no sense that there is women's work or men's work. My dad used to say, work is work. Wherever you do it, whether you do it at home or you don't do it at home, it's still work and it still needs to get done. And there was absolutely no shame attached to whichever kind of work that you were doing. And it was only really at school, especially towards the end of when I was at school, when I went down the engineering path, which meant I ended up being the only girl in some of my classes. So in chemistry and maths, I was the only girl. I didn't reflect on this in a conscious way, but subconsciously, I think I started to wonder whether I was just different. I thought maybe my brain is wired differently. Maybe I just have different interests and I'm just fundamentally deep down less feminine. And even at university, of course, doing engineering, I was one of the few girls in the department. And still there was this kind of underlying message that I was getting that maths and science is something that boys do and you're exceptional in having an interest in this. You're a little bit different. It was only really when I was writing Inferior and I saw the data showing the lack of psychological differences or intellectual cognitive differences between men and women that I really started to reflect on why it was that I had made choices that other girls had not made and why we have those stereotypes in society. And during that period of your life when you were increasingly visible in the sense that you were one of the few or the only woman in your science classes, did you try and compensate for that in any way? Did you try and be more invisible or did you try and compensate for the fact you thought, well, I'm doing a non-feminine course of study, so in other aspects of my life I need to play up a more girlish or feminine identity? How did it pan out? I've never been super feminine, if I'm honest. You know, even my style is kind of minimalist and, you know, not flowery. My problem was in the engineering department, the girls were hyper visible because there were so few of us. So, of course, we were getting attention. We were being noticed all the time. Lecturers would sometimes pick on us to answer questions. And my response to that was to try and blend in as much as possible. I started wearing very, very mute colors. I would wear black and gray all the time. I stopped wearing nail polish. I just stopped altogether. I still don't wear it now. I cut my hair short. You know, I tried so hard just to make it feel that I should not be treated any differently from anybody else, that my gender didn't matter, that I was not trying to attract attention. I just wanted to be accepted for who I was and not be noticed almost in the department. And you did incredibly well at your studies. You actually emerged with two master's degrees, one in engineering, the other in science and security. And yet you decided to go into journalism. Why do that rather than pursue a career in research science or presumably you could have worked in a big corporation as an engineer? Why journalism? 
It was because I got, like I said, I got involved in student activism when I started writing for the student paper. And that was incredibly important to me. One of the first things I ever remember writing was around the age of nine or 10 when my family had just moved to that part of Southeast London. And I'd experienced my first incidents of violent racism. And I wrote about it and I read it out in class. I remember my teacher when I first arrived at that school, me and my sister when we arrived were one of the few non-white children in that school. And my teacher saying to me, recounting to me, she was she was much older, the first time she ever saw a black person and what that felt for, <laughs> what that felt like for her. So I felt that, you know, through this process of writing things down and relaying them to other people, there was a possibility of catharsis, not just for me, but also to help other people understand this experience so that they could put themselves in my shoes almost. And it became so important for me to get these stories out, do the analysis underneath. I was doing an internship, I remember, with the London Underground. So I was going into the tunnels with their engineers. I was working with their engineers. They gave me a session with their careers advisor. They have a HR person in the underground. It's a huge organization, obviously, and they have a really great HR team. And at the end, she said, Angela, look, your passion really seems to be writing and journalism. Why don't you just try it? And then if it doesn't work out, you can come back to engineering. That's a wonderful thing about engineering. It's such a bankable degree, which is why I always encourage women and girls to pursue it as a career, because it really is such a great degree to have. It's broad. It teaches you so much. It shows you how the world works. There's no shortage of jobs and if you have an engineering degree. And so I thought, fine, I'll try it. And actually it worked out because I was different from other journalism entry people, you know, as, as a graduate, I was very numerate. I understood the world in a slightly different way. So I found it, you know, a real benefit to my career to have that as my educational background. And you have been able to take your deep knowledge of science and help us better understand our world through it. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you've really deeply explored the way that women have been systematically excluded from the practice of science for centuries and that there are entire branches of pseudoscience that have been fabricated to give the idea that women are too weak or feeble to do various things. Can you tell us a little bit about that theme of your writing? It's truly fascinating. Well, I'm sure this is, these are stereotypes that you have encountered as well, but, you know, they're so ingrained. We're exposed to them from such a young age. And not just that, because we're exposed to them, we also play up to them. You know, we try to meet that expectation that we will be a slightly more fragile or, you know, slight, slightly more vulnerable. <laughs> and then they become self-fulfilling prophecies in a way. And I think that's one of the themes of my work is not just how culture shapes us, but how we in turn shape culture through our behaviours and actions because of the way that culture has shaped us. I wrote Inferior after I had my son, I was going back to work. And obviously at that point, you know, having been nine months or something out of, <laughs> out of the workforce, I had to take what I could get. And usually I'd written about physical sciences topics, engineering, that kind of thing. But an editor asked me if I wanted to write about the menopause and this was a completely new topic to me. I hadn't really thought about it. You know, menopause for me personally seemed a long way away. I spoke to my mother-in-law about it, actually, because she had a really good experience. She she enjoyed her menopause because for her, she was just so relieved to get her periods out the way. 
And she didn't suffer some of the huge side effects that I know some women suffer. We have so many different experiences. For some, it's a terrible experience. For her, it happened to be a really good one. And I was just fascinated by this question of why do we experience this at all? What purpose does this serve biologically? So I was looking at evolutionary explanations for for why women lose fertility and why we go through this change. And it happened that at that exact moment that I was writing it, a paper had just been published by three male scientists in Canada arguing that the reason women experience the menopause is because throughout evolutionary history, and this was going to sound bizarre, throughout evolutionary history, older women just haven't had sex. (laughs) Just (laughs) such a bizarre thing to say that, you know, older men were having sex with younger women, but older women weren't having sex. And of course, when the paper came out, it was critiqued heavily and ridiculed also in some circles, because there just wasn't a good mechanism to explain that. And not just that, it doesn't chime with anyone's experience. How many older women do you know that aren't having sex? So I looked into this and actually there was the leading counter hypothesis. The grandmother hypothesis says that the reason we live so long into our infertile years, because of course, all primates lose fertility eventually. The only difference is that they happen to die around the same time that they lose lose fertility. And we live so long into our infertile years is that the presence of a grandmother is so crucial to the survival of her children and grandchildren that we have pushed our longevity further and further. And we have a really good mechanism for this. In fact, we can see in statistical data even now that the presence of a grandmother increases the survival rates of her children and grandchildren even now in the 21st century. So what fascinated me was that mainly women had worked on the grandmother hypothesis and mainly men had worked on this patriarch hypothesis. And if science is really fair, then why would the gender of researcher matter? Why should it make any difference? You know, that's what I had been taught, that science is neutral. It doesn't matter who you are. It makes no difference. And actually, what I found was it does make a huge difference. And that's why the science of sex difference is such a political battleground. That's fantastic. And a big shout out to all the grandmothers who are listening to this (laughs) podcast. (laughs) They'll be very pleased to hear all of that. That brings me very squarely to your wonderful new book, The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule. I'm going to refer to the cover art as ironic pink. (laughs) We, We delved into ironic pink with the Not Now, Not Ever essay series last year. So great to see the ironic pink. It's an incredibly eye-opening analysis of the commonly believed myths around patriarchy. You basically myth-bust a lot of the time. But before I take you to some of your myth-busting, because I really loved it, I think we should define our terms. What do you mean by patriarchy in this book? This is one of the fundamental things I struggled with because I think we use the term in such a broad way to mean practically everything. Anytime a woman is disadvantaged or anytime something unfair happens, and I do this myself, that's the patriarchy's fault. I remember when the microphones didn't work at one of the events I was giving and I joked for the audience, that's the patriarchy. <laughs> so we we have this kind of vision of it we imagine it as something monolithic almost conspiratorial as though there's something happening behind the scenes that is working to disadvantage women all the time no matter what we try and do and I wanted to pick underneath that and ask actually how does this play out 
in actual societies and different cultures and across time. And what you see is a great deal of variation. Every single culture in which you have patriarchal systems, and of course, they're not universal. This is one of the points I try to make in the book. And in fact, the only illustration in the book is a map of matrilineal societies, which do not follow the same rules. But Everywhere that you see male domination, it takes different forms. So one of the arguments I make in the patriarchs is that there is no single patriarchy. What we actually see are multiple patriarchies, context-specific and time-specific, and they're constantly being remade, and they're far more fragile than you might imagine. They're not monolithic. They're not conspiratorial. They've just been built up in layers and layers and fed into our other systems of law and knowledge and science and religion until it feels monolithic and conspiratorial. It feels all-encompassing when, in fact, all it is is kind of woven into different parts of our life, but again, in different ways, depending on where you live. So in some parts of the world, yes, patriarchal systems are thousands of years old. In some areas, though, they are no more than 100 years old. In fact, there are people still who can remember the encroachment of patriarchy into their societies. The book does uncover all of that local difference of culture and context. And yet it is really fighting, I think, against beliefs that many people would have, including many feminists, about why there is patriarchy. Mm. And so let me put a few of those beliefs to you. Even for people who wouldn't subscribe to the sort of biological essentialism that we've just talked about, people who don't believe that men and women's brains are radically different, many would think to themselves that the reason patriarchy is so much a phenomenon around today's world is stemming from our past as a species where on average men were bigger and stronger than women. That physical ability to dominate ultimately came to shape societies that were based around domination too. Mm. And that's the explanation for all of it. What would you respond to that with? Oh, I hear that quite often. And I think that's a very logical conclusion to come to (laughs) when you look at the world. And we know that men are on average slightly bigger than women, although that size difference does vary culturally as well. But there is very little evidence that Actually, there's no evidence to suggest that male domination stretches all the way back into deep time. We don't see evidence for that. In fact, it is quite universal now among anthropologists to accept that male domination is something that came quite late into our evolutionary history, that we can we can trace a history of it. And in fact, that's what I'm trying to do in the book is trace that history. We don't see, for example, if you go... If you study Neolithic societies, one of the places that I visited when I was writing The Patriarchs was Chattelhuyuk, which is famous. It was discovered in the 1960s. It's in Anatolia in Turkey. It is 9,000 years old. It was last occupied 9,000 years ago. So it predates Stonehenge, the pyramids, Harappa, all the famous civilizations that you can think of. It predates all of them. It predates writing. And it's very sophisticated. This was a settlement in which thousands of people lived, where the houses and the artwork are very complex. We don't know what people were thinking because, again, we don't have written evidence. But what we can know from the 
remains is that this was not a gendered society. This is one thing that the lead archaeologist there told me, is that over time it became clear to him that you do not see differences in what people ate. There weren't even big size differences between men and women. They spent roughly the same amount of time indoors and outdoors. They were doing pretty much the same thing. And there were female figurines everywhere. So right throughout the Neolithic, what you see is this abundance of female figurines, not just in Chattelhoyuk, but right across that region, across the Fertile Crescent. So we just don't have very good evidence pointing to a heavily gendered society, but we do have that later on. So thousands of years later, as we move into ancient Mesopotamia and then antiquity, from where we do have written records, very slowly and gradually, you see the use of gendered language and gendered laws creeping in, slowly restricting, and this is led by states, not by families, states restricting what people can do and promoting large families, for instance, because they want to keep up population, promoting this idea of loyalty to the state. So sons would have to give themselves over to be available to fight for the state. And from that, this a whole host of gendered stereotypes about masculinity being about being able to go to war and being macho and femininity being about nurturing and you know the still the ideas that we have today about being more housebound but like i say that emerged very very late into human history it's only really in ancient greece that you see this separation separate spheres of a woman's place is the domestic one and the man's place is the public one in terms of that transition Many people would believe that it's all explained by settlements originally being far more gender equitable, as you've described, but then the militaristic culture bringing invading conquerors who, you know, were groups of people, large groups of people, large groups of men who had decided to adopt this militaristic outlook on the world and to take the projection of physical force to places where they could reap rewards, whether those rewards be in goods or the domination over other human beings. And there's been quite a current in a lot of feminist literature that, you know, we used to originally live in peaceful, nurturing, goddess-worshipping societies and they got overwhelmed by these conquering hordes. Is that right? (laughs) Well, this is one of the things I was most intrigued by and I I devote a lot of the book to exactly this question. It actually emerged as a narrative in the 19th century. This was the first time in European history, at least, that people first started looking at prehistory and asking well, how did we get to this? And one of the leading thinkers who created an entire theory around this was Friedrich Engels, who co-wrote the Communist Manifesto. So he argued that all societies had originally been matriarchal. And one of the reasons he said that was because there were indigenous societies that European colonists had encountered that were matrilineal, in which women had a lot of power. And they thought that they must be more primitive. And so maybe they reflect how we used to be, and now we've become male-dominated. Why is that? Which, again, is a flawed way of thinking, which I'm not going to go into right now. (laughs) But Friedrich Engels' argument was that then thousands of years ago, at a time we can't necessarily identify, there was this world historical defeat of the female sex. And that phrase has really rung through feminist literature for decades, even in the 1970s, 1980s, and sometimes even now I hear people 
making this assumption that we were matriarchal once and then society became patriarchal. And again, we don't have good historical evidence for that, but I wouldn't ditch the idea that a change did happen because changes did happen, you know, that some things did happen. They just happened over a very long period of time and they weren't quite as binary and simplistic as that theory kind of claims them to be. So, for example, we have very good historical evidence now from genetics as well as archaeology showing that there were huge migrations of people from the Eurasian steppe into Europe and parts of Asia and that their cultures were possibly different from the cultures that they were entering. But there was already social changes happening in those regions already. So around 7,000 to 5,000 years ago, what you see is the number of men having children declining. So fewer men are having more children than most other men. The number of women having children stays the same. And in genetics, they call this a kind of Y chromosome bottleneck. And in fact, it's still happening today. People talk about the Y chromosome shrinking and large proportions of men, even today, related to single ancestors that we can, we can trace back into history. So social changes were happening, you know, between 7,000 and 5,000 years ago. What precipitated those changes, I think, is more complex, but we shouldn't reduce it to this idea that it was led by men and women were the vulnerable, almost inevitable victims of it. That would be a really ahistorical reading, I think, not least because we know in militaristic societies, for example, in ancient Sparta, women were heavily invested in the militaristic aims of the state. We have these laconic sayings from Sparta of women telling their husbands to go to war, shaming their sons and their brothers and their husbands for not being brave enough when they're fighting. And also we have women warriors. You know, some of the earliest evidence that we have of women warriors is from the Eurasian steppe. From thousands of years ago, women being buried with injuries, with weapons. So I think the picture is a bit more complex. The book does take us in a beautiful way to much of this complexity and there are some fantastic uh, word portraits in here and facts that you recount which leave you thinking for many, many hours afterwards. I want to take you to a couple. One is about language and you uh, tell us in the book the very earliest written examples we have of Indo-European languages belonging to a branch spoken across ancient Anatolia, including Hittite, do not appear to have a grammatically separate feminine gender. The feminine gender would have been added to the other Indo-European languages at some point. It is definitely there in these languages from 3300 BCE, but not before 4000 BCE. So another complexity that there were languages widely spoken where there aren't gendered pronouns and yet they emerge in those languages hundreds of years later. What do you think is going on there? I found that fascinating. I was just in Spain last week at a gender and science communication conference and one of the sessions was on how difficult it is for researchers and reporters to write about science in a fair, inclusive way, because even the word for scientist in the Spanish language is either a male scientist or a female scientist. So if you're talking about scientists, 
it's usually male gendered, <laughs> regardless of the constitution of the actual group, which makes it incredibly difficult. You know, if you imagine every single word, every single noun is gendered in some way, how do you ever separate yourself from that and build a, a kind of more diverse way of thinking about humanity? I do think our languages betray our gendered histories. They tell us something about the way that our ancestors valued and thought about gender. And this is perhaps why some languages are less gendered than others. But certainly, as Alvin Clockworth was saying in that quote from the book, that when you go back into prehistory or into very ancient history, you don't see language as gendered as it becomes later. That means that gender became more of a preoccupation later. So, for example, if you look at the Sumerian king list, this is a list of kings that existed in ancient Sumeria. There are women in there, which forces us to ask, did the word king have a different meaning from the way we use it now? And that, for me, is such an insight into the past and how very slowly we came to think of ourselves as not just separate, almost like different breeds, which is how Enlightenment scientists came to think about men and women, but as having a suite of physical and psychological differences between us that really did give us roles in society that were completely different, which of course is not how we would have lived for most of our evolutionary history. Because as anyone knows, if you're living a subsistence lifestyle, you have to be able to do everything. Everyone has to be able to do everything. But that changed with the emergence of states. With big states, people began to be organized into groups. They began to be categorized by the states. And that, when gender becomes an organizing principle, that's when you see, I would argue, the first shoots of what we now think of as patriarchy. I want to take you to a more recent bit of the book, and I love this too. People who know anything about their Cold War history would know that there were a number of times when the President of the United States of America and the President of the USSR would meet and would talk about things like weapons reductions as the world tried to step back from uh, the brink of a Cold War becoming a hot war. And yet you take us to a time that those two male leaders were debating what happens in kitchens. Can you give us <laughs> that word picture? It's a wonderful one. So I live in the US now. I've been here about a year and a half. And this is quite a well-known episode in American history. It's known as the kitchen debate. So Nixon and Khrushchev, when Khrushchev was visiting this kind of model American home introduced by, by Nixon, and he was shown at the kind of height, the peak of Soviet power, and this real anxiety on the part of Americans that, you know, this communist specter, that will people also revolt here? Will we also end up with this system of government? And Nixon showed Khrushchev this, you know, this modern American kitchen with a front-loading washing machine and a modern marvels that made the lives of housewives so much easier. And Khrushchev's response was, well, we don't treat our housewives as property. You know, our men and women both work and, you know, we have gender equality. And 
this gender debate was a really big part of the Cold War battle. We kind of forget ideologically just how crucial it was. It really underpinned so many of the stereotypes that I still see in the US now about the Soviet woman, you know, the big, sturdy Soviet woman, (laughs) you know, who's almost masculine in her appearance. But that comes from exactly that time when American men were coming back from war and women who previously had been entering universities in quite high numbers and had certainly entered the workforce during the war were now expected to stay at home and be housewives while the men went out to work. Meanwhile, in Soviet Russia, exactly the opposite had been happening. Of course, Soviet Russia was the very first country to legalize abortion. That was in 1920. And it introduced very quickly measures to make sure that everyone was expected to work. And this was true not just in Russia, but also in other Eastern and Central European socialist states. Women were sent to technical colleges. There was a real effort to undermine this idea of women's work and men's work, that, you know, you should all be working and it was appropriate for women to work and do what men were doing. And it really dramatically changed how people thought about themselves in these former socialist states. So norms about gender were completely different. Divorce rates were higher. In some states, for example, in Hungary, I was interviewing this wonderful researcher in Hungary who was telling me that when she was growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, Her parents, who both worked in Budapest, would go and take their linens to the laundry and the laundry would do them and then they would just bring them back and it was super cheap. And their food, they would go and eat in the canteen and her mum hardly ever cooked. And she was quite shocked when she travelled to North America and saw, saw women cooking and thought, what is this? People are cooking dinner. This just doesn't happen in my household. So these gender norms were completely different, but there was also... An anxiety on both sides. There was an anxiety on the Soviet part because, of course, it was an authoritarian, repressive regime that achieved what it did through brutality and by riding roughshod over what people might actually want. And not all women wanted this. Whereas in the US, there was this anxiety that, you know, with Betty Friedan, particularly once the feminist movement started, they were calling for things that women in Soviet Russia already had. And that, I think, is a relatively under-talked about (laughs) period of history. What you see in these very repressive authoritarian socialist states, and I'm not calling for communism again in that form, of course not, but what we shouldn't forget is that this was, in the 20th century, perhaps the first example we have, the boldest example we have, of people actually trying to smash the patriarchy. You talk in your book of the numerous ways in which women keep patriarchal structures alive. One example you give is where daughter-in-laws go and live with their husband's family and effectively become a servant for the family. And when they become the mother-in-law, they enforce the same rules against the next generation. Or you refer to women who see uh, some rules of faith or custom that need to be imposed on the next generation. You talk about female genital mutilation, for example. And you also talk about how internalised taking a lesser share can be, the women who take less of the food at a meal because they've internalised that that's their role. I mean, with all of these many examples about how women reflect what the patriarchy wants of them and thinks that they are actually choosing it, how can we make change? 
Well, the reason I included those examples is because often when we talk about patriarchy and feminist circles, we're talking about Europe and the West. And I wanted to illustrate that it takes different forms depending on where you are in the world. And certainly in Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, that mother-in-law, daughter-in-law dynamic is one of the main vectors for patriarchal structures. There's absolutely no doubt about it. You see it again and again. In fact, it's a it's such a common trope. It's repeated in soap operas and films. It's just dominant. And it really does shape the lives and fortunes of women. Where it comes from is that in patrilocal cultures, so these are cultures in which women leave their own family home to go and live with their husbands. So you're essentially leaving the comfort and safety of your family, of your kin, people who've known you since childhood, and joining who in some cases can sometimes be strangers. It's not that long ago, my mum's generation, in which women would sometimes get married without ever having met their husband, sometimes moving very far away. And in fact, one of the examples I give in the book is of women who have moved country with their husbands and the domestic violence and abuse they sometimes suffer at the hands of their in-laws, which is a big issue in diaspora communities in Europe and throughout the West. And that situation, of course, as you can imagine, creates an imbalance of power. If you are on your own in a family in which everyone knows each other and is looking out for each other, but you're the new one and you already are expected because of cultural expectation to you know, be a bit deferential to your husband and to your parents-in-law, then it, of course it creates a kind of master-servant relationship in some cases. And in fact, the parallel I give is with slavery. It's not that it is literally slavery, but certainly you can see echoes of it in the way that marriage customs have developed and the institution of marriage has developed in the way that, you know, you are almost, you know, expected to be subservient, to give yourself over, to be completely submissive to this new family that you've joined. And in fact, now, it's only relatively recently that forced marriage, which is the most extreme form of this patrilocal marriage, has now been classified officially by the International Labour Organization as a form of modern-day slavery. So there are many millions of women and girls today living in conditions like this, patriarchal conditions, patrilocal conditions, in which they are essentially slaves. You know, that is, I think, the foundational patriarchal institution, how that happens and how that developed. Now, going back to your question, when we perpetuate these things ourselves, when we become mother-in-laws and behave terribly to our daughter-in-laws and then they grow up and do the same and this cycle just continues, or when you see aunts and mothers pushing their daughters to have FGM, even though they know how painful it is because they feel it will serve them in society if they have this procedure done. They know it will be easier for them to get married. All of this we know is in the service of this culture that serves men, but we also have to live our lives and we have to make it work somehow. We have to draw power and agency where we can. And so we just keep replicating it. We just keep doing it because that's all we have. When you have no way out, then what else can you do? You have to just buy into the system and make it work for you as an individual in whichever way you can. So I'm not condemning the women, of course, who find themselves in this situation because often they will have no other choice. They will have nowhere else to go. The question is, how do we break that cycle? How do we interrupt it? 
And how do we detach it from our commitment to tradition and culture, which I think is such a dangerous game because it we can find ourselves then as women defending things that should be indefensible, as a human rights issue, indefensible, but we defend it because of culture. You conclude the book by talking about the way in which our societies from time to time have jumped to a new rainbow, you use the terminology. Your exact sentence is, as far back as we can see, humans have landed on rainbows of different ways of organising themselves, always negotiating the rules around gender and its meaning. Nothing has ever been static. How do we jump to that next rainbow that we want to be on? Oh, I wish. I wish I knew. I mean, you're one of these people, obviously, is a kind of trailblazer in this respect that just by living differently, by making the choices that people don't want you to make, defying convention in those small ways in our everyday lives, we can really change things. When I started writing The Patriarchs, uh, the final chapter is on Iran, the Iranian Revolution of 1979, which was devastating for women in lots of different ways, not least because women had participated in that revolution and had hoped for something better afterwards. And as I was finishing the book, of course, a protest started after Masa Amini's tragic death started happening in Iran. And it did force me to ask myself, you know, how do we achieve change? Is it through reform? Or is it through revolution, which actually delivers in the end? And what we do know is that at least in the last century or so, the revolutions haven't always worked, not least because you need a replacement. You need an alternative. If you're going to revolt and overthrow everything, what takes its place? And that was the tragedy of the 1979 revolution in Iran, that what took its place was worse for many people, not for everyone. The conservatives wanted the Islamic regime, but it wasn't good for everyone. And again, with these protests in Iran, we have to ask ourselves, well, if they work, if that revolution really does happen, what would take its place? What do we have instead? And what we have seen is that in European societies, which have, you know, historically had some of the most entrenched patriarchal beliefs of anywhere in the world, that deep idea of women's intellectual inferiority really does come from European thinking. They have achieved that change largely, I mean, partly through revolution, but often those revolutions are around class rather than around gender. But they have achieved it through reform. You know, that slow piecemeal reform, it's not comfortable because all of us want it fast. We want it now. We don't want to have to wait generations. I don't want my children to have to wait for that change. But at least you get there with everybody on board. But if we are going to take the revolutionary approach, and I would love that, I would love to see radical alternatives to how we live now, then we have to have that radical alternative in mind. We have to know exactly what it what it will look like. One of the things you do in the book so well is you paint the limits of our imagining about that radical alternative. I was particularly drawn, you talk about the, the movies, uh, there's been various iterations of it, but the Planet of the Apes style movies where the central thesis is that there's been this revolutionary change and now apes are in charge and uh, human beings are the sort of enslaved underclass and you make the very telling point that in a work of sort of dystopian fiction that is imagining an entirely different future, even in that context, the ruling apes are 
complying with with known gender norms. So the men are leading, the women apes are looking after children, they're wearing beads in their hair. So it's almost like a, a failure of imagination that we can, you know, be big enough to imagine a world where everything's different, you know, the apes, planet of the apes, and yet we we aren't big enough in the vision to also completely reimagine gender relations. So mm-hmm. it's a call to us to be very big sky about that imagining. I'm going to come now to uh, the questions that I ask each guest. Let me start with what's the worst misogyny that you've ever experienced? Well, I'll tell you the worst experience I had which may not sound that bad. And I won't go into, you know, I I think after Me Too, a lot of us have examined our relationships and things like that and have recalled things in a very different way now. And I won't talk about that now because I would not talk about it. But when I got married, my in-laws, who I absolutely love and adore, who are really wonderful people, and everything that I've said about in-laws does not apply to them. I just want to want to be clear. We, we've built a very good, at times fractious, but often very warm and close relationship. But they were very keen for me to change my surname to match my husband's. And I had a number of quite tense arguments I remember with my father-in-law about this and what I said to him was if one of us has to change our name why can it not be him and the only answer he had was tradition that's not the tradition the tradition is this way and because of that I capitulated in allowing my son's surname to be my husband's surname which I still regret to this day I still feel that I shouldn't have done that and I wish I'd stood up (laughs) and not capitulated if you had all the power in the world just for a moment Mm. what's the one thing you would change for women I would end child marriage and forced marriage it's a great answer since the Nobel Prize began over a century ago fewer than three percent of the science laureates have been women and they were almost always awarded jointly with male peers. Mm. Only one woman of colour has ever received the award for science. Over the past 10 years, women have made up 9% of the Nobel laureates for science, with only eight women receiving awards for science compared with 78 men. Mm. What's your reaction to those statistics? Well, we have to remember that that is a product of legacies, centuries of exclusion, deliberate exclusion of women. The European scientific establishment from the Enlightenment onwards excluded women as a matter of course. So all the scientific academies did not admit women as members. When Marie Curie, the year Marie Curie won her second Nobel Prize, she was denied membership of the French Academy of Sciences. So this is how exclusive that club was. There was a 100% male quota for hundreds of years. And we're only just starting to recover from that. And there is still a huge amount of sexism, harassment and abuse in academia that isn't being addressed, I think, adequately by institutions. Something that we think about at the Wellcome Trust and are trying to make a difference to one of the other involvements that I have. Let me conclude now with a quote from Virginia Woolf because, of course, Virginia says, I enjoy almost everything, yet I have some restless searcher in me. Why is there not a discovery in life, something that one can lay hands on and say, this is it? Angela says... 
Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's such a great, great quote. I love it. You know, I just saw the Virginia Woolf exhibition at the New York Public Library that's just here. She was a pioneer in that sense, giving us a space and having a space of your own, I think is incredibly important when you're a writer or whatever you do, actually. We all need our own space. We all do need our own space, a podcast of one's own, a room of one's own. Thank you for joining (laughs) me on the podcast. And thank you, thank you, thank you for this fantastic book. Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.